Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Do you know how that works? I'm a little bit worried no by all idea, these machines I've got to get them to roll off. Clément will know. Should I? Yeah. I do need my okay. coats. This is oh, this is the one. Yes. Okay, wonderful. That's fine. That's fine. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this introduction. So yes, so Virginia Woolf's French Club. Um, the conundrum of the early translation of uh, the Time Passes section of Woolf's novel is not unknown, of course, but it's nonetheless bizarre enough to deserve a quick summary. Um, in May 1926, Woolf concluded the first version of the novel's central section and apparently did not show it to Leonard before January 1927. And it so happens that the winter issue of the French journal Commerce December 1926, boasted unexpectedly the translation of Time Passes a few months, therefore, before publication. Uh, the translation, or rather a translation, because the French text differs substantially from both the holograph version and from the printed work published in London in, uh, in, in February 27. For years, the common opinion was that Time Passes existed in two versions only the holograph and the printed ones. And the conspicuous discrepancies between these and the French text were vaguely attributed to the translator, translator Charles Mohan's whims and poetic licenses. Until, all of a sudden, a third verse, version came to light in 1983, the type script prepared for Mohan. In James Hall's words, clearly typed by Virginia Woolf herself and containing last-minute alterations in her own hands, this manuscript is undoubtedly an intermediary text, standing between the early holograph and the published edition, end of quote. Now, this is clearly very fascinating stuff, but I shall leave it for, uh, I shall leave its further exploration to genetic criticism. In order to concentrate rather on the intriguing and not altogether unambiguous Anglo-French relations and transactions entailed by the episode, and also on the modes in which they may have shaped and oriented Wolf's reception beyond the channel. First of all, it may be worth reminding Wolf's, uh, is it the white one? No? Did I? The one on the right. This one? Yes. Okay, yes, yes thank you. Um, it's worth reminding Wolf's explicit lack of enthusiasm for the very process of translation, a true catastrophe indeed, in which the original is turned into a crude and adulterated ghost of itself. Why is it then that she consented to the translation of a section which was so obviously worrying her a lot? At the origin of it all, the mediation is uh, um, it, the mediation, of course, of Morrow's co close friend, Ian Forster and Roger Fry. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we've got here uh, Wolf's letter, quite formal actually. Um, the Princess of Bassiano has asked me to suggest. Um, I can't read it. A translator for a chapter from a book of mine, which is being published in Commerce in January. Mr. Forster has advised me to ask you if you would do it, as he so much admires your translation of the passage to India. And you can detect a little formality there, but there's no formality whatsoever in Fry's uh, letter to the translator's wife. Um, here, the tone is familiar and reveals the perplexities elicited by the reading of the chapter and what Fry calls uh, Wolf's way of poeticizing too much. 
I've seen, I've sent off the proofs of Virginia Woolf in haste and without a word so as not to miss another post. I hope it will be all right. Good Lord, how difficult she is to translate. But I think Charles has managed to keep the atmosphere marvelously. To tell you the truth, I do not think this piece is quite of her best vintage. I've noticed uh, one peculiarity. She's so splendid as soon as a character is involved. For example, the old concierge is superb. But when she tries to give her impressions of inanimate objects, she exaggerates, she underlines, she poeticizes just a little bit. Several times I felt it was better in the translation because in translation everything is slightly reduced, less accentuated, and in general better. Fry, <laughs> Fry is gentle, of course, but a trifle condescending as well. And there is something slightly disturbing in the exchange between the two men, Vaya and Marie, of course, discussing the modes to improve Wolf's prose. And the writer herself was anxiously aware of, friends, of her friends' reservations. This is Virginia. Roger, it is clear, did not like time passes. She writes in February 27, lamenting the hopeless mess of the commerce translation and the anxieties revolving around the whole affair. It gave me more trouble than the rest of the book put together, and I was afraid it had not succeeded. Thus, around and in between the three versions of time passes and Wolfe, first official appearance in the French literary landscape, a long series of hesitations, misgiving, and quite a few pangs of professional disappointment. Then comes the question of commerce. A young journal at the time says it had been created in 1924, directed by the aristocratic, very aristocratic el elitist Princess Obasiano, who intended to mimic on paper the conversational modes of an intellectual salon. She had secured some among the most glamorous collaborators available in Paris. Uh, Paul Valéry, Léon Paul Favre, Jean Paulin, and the endlessly energetic Valérie Larbeau, whose flair no doubt explains Caetani's request, Princess Bassiano's request to Wolf. In some ways, however, there seems to be a discordance between the cultural politics of the review and Wolf's beliefs and poetics. Did the writer know at the time? Um, that very few women indeed had ever made their way to the pages of commerce. Edith Sitwell shared the privilege with Wolf, the only two feminine voices in 29 issues of the journal, truly a negative record of female absences. While not writers in their own rights, women did, however, contribute to the journal as translators, clearly enjoying very little visibility. Commerce was eclectic adventurous in its search for unpublished material. It was validated by, as a cosmopolitan enterprise by Larbeau's collaboration. But the review had a fearfully masculine board of, a board of directors and an equally male-oriented vision of literature. A strange choice, therefore, for the authors of a room of one's own. For sure, Wolfe was also aware that James Joyce's aura had been made a lot of in commerce, while, on another hand, no line about Proust had ever been published by Caetani's review. In the very same, the very years in which, uh, in which um, Paris saw the publication of La Prisonnière, Albertine Disparue, Le Temps Retrouvé, not to mention the very famous 1923 special issue of the NRF, Nouvelle Revue Française, dedicated to their author. Those of Wolf's friends, who were also active in France, Fry, Forster, Moron, had no real affinity with the conversational ideal of the journal, and were involved rather in the more, in the more austere and militant critical practices of the Décade de Pontigny. And yet, 
On another hand, it is possible to trace resonances between Wolf and the journal, who introduced her to French audiences. Commerce, for instance, prided itself not to rely on any organic aesthetic project. It is a as a journal, a journal I'm sorry, it existed without a manifesto, and deliberately so, a particularity which may have triggered Wolf's sympathy. Another serendipitous coincidence lies in the fact that the journal championed a flexible attitude to genres, vacillating, as it were, from one to another. The real artist, according to, commerce, to the commerce editors, is the one who does not belong to a genre but fearlessly breaks its boundaries. If ever she was aware of such inclination, Wolf may have mirrored in her own, in it, her own dissatisfaction with canonical limitations she resented. Similarly, the British novelist could have been attracted by Kaitemi's and her bold choice to promote temporal contiguities between contemporary artists and all masters. Antonin Artaud, Artaud and obscure 16th century Maurice Serve, for example, or Valérie and Thomas Brown. And incidentally, we know that Thomas Brown was also one of Wool's favorites, as Orlando was about to make clear. Commerce, thus, in many ways, was militating for a ceasefire in the quarrel between the ancients and the modern, an attitude which also, to some extent, belonged to Wolf. At the end, everyone seemed to be happy, with a great flourish of compliments addressed to Charles Moron, and um, okay. Um, and the fleeting impression that he had done Virginia a great favor, right, in taming her text, making it better than it originally was. For all these reasons, and in spite of, um, of the few affinities between writer and review, there is something unreconciled and awkward in Wolf's commerce connection, and therefore in her first official presentation in Paris. She doesn't seem to be at home amongst those men only who, moreover, objected to Proust's syntax, a Proust that we know she, she uh, revered and adored. Uh, those men, and who also had a religion of pure form, l'atome du pur, the atom of the pure, as Valérie, uh, as Valérie would call it. And it will be that the jarring elements attached to Wolf's inaugural French appearance have dictated the mode of her reception and dissemination and generated a series of misunderstandings. A short assessment of some figures of the text may be of help. Oh, that's the, the, the quote on tradition. Quelle merveille de traduction. Je trouve que vous avez vraiment fait l'impossible. Je suis certaine que Madame Wood doit être enchantée. This is Princess Bastiana. Okay, so this is Virginia, I mean, who must really congratulate, um, you know, be um, uh, grateful to Moron because he, he's made, you know, her text so fantastic. She must be enchanted. Um, C'est certainement une chance d'être traduit de cette façon et qui n'est malheureusement pas l'expérience de beaucoup d'écrivains. So she is clearly the one who benefits from, um, from the translation. Okay. So a short assessment of some features of the text may be of help. For a start, the intermediary version had obviously been conceived as a site-specific specimen. Not anymore or not yet the bridge destined to establish a link between pre-war and post-war section of the novel. The opening here descends brutally into obscurity. It grew darker, il fit plus sombre, in contrast with the gradual extinction of the published novel. One by one, the lamps were all extinguished. 
an incipit in which many 1927 readers perceived an echo of the Foreign Affairs Secretary Edward Gray's gloomy evocation of the conflict. He said, the lambs are all going out over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. In the modern version, however, <coughs> both English and French, the war is if not erased, less discernible. It is a lexical presence, not the narrative one typical of the printed text. We all remember, for instance, how temporality is measured by parentheticals in the final text in which historical events are compressed. Death of Mrs. Ramsay, death of Prue, a shell kills Andrew, and together with him a whole generation, Carmichael publishes a book of poems, etc., etc. But such narrative markers have been diluted in the Paris text which seems to assert its autonomy and its vocation as perhaps a poem en prose in the French style with impoverished temporal and geographical articulations. We also have an example in this quotation of uh, Moron's deflating mode of uh, translation. Um, with the word, for instance, flood, right, uh, translated as flow. Nothing could survive the flood, the profusion, the, profusion, the downpouring of intense darkness, which creeping the keyhole, etc. Rien ne pouvait survivre au flot. And, and it's clear that from flood to flow, Morvan keeps the, um, uh, the phonetic sound right. But at the same time, flood has got a, a series of theological association and dramatic and even cataclysmic associations which completely disappear in flow, a very uh, colloquial and, and common and, and commonplace uh, word. So flow really here is um, uh, true, therefore, to phonetics. Uh, Moron is, but not to the apocalyptic colouring of the English flood. Flow is reassuringly domestic and referential. And the next slide um, comes as a confirmation of Moron's attention to the sound structure of Tannhauser's, faced with a very harsh rhythm of velar consonants. The translator softens here the K sounds into the more gentle alliterative uh, structure of P's. You can see um, the all passively creased in the creases of beds and easily lying scarcely covered in childhood as, uh, as if a cloud lightly curved under them then rose to break. And this um, uh, moves to French into uh, les vieillards um, uh, passivement, les nombreux cœurs gisant endormis, soit dans les attitudes rigides des vieillards passivement ployés dans les plis. So he keeps again, you know, the alliteration, the four P's, but it's more gentle and it's less uh, repetitive, of course, than the K one. Um, and as Fry suggested, Moron tends to drag the text in the direction of a greater simplicity and of a less obsessive phonosymbolism, shall we say, perhaps. See, for example, in the um, uh, further down, the, um, the doom, despair, drowning, reverberated in one single word in the, uh, in the adverb désespérément, okay? Um, the doom which drowned the earth and find a, a final solution, an easier solution, and a more perhaps simple and classical solution in the one uh, in the one adverb. Um, and uh, we, of course, without the hammering, right, of the uh, of the Wolfian repetition. And the same 
the same happens in the next sentence. Clearly shocked, right, by the, the, the almost cacophonic cluster of K sound, the cock crows of a faint of a faint green quickens. The autumn trees ravage at the hour, take on the flesh of tattered flags, kill it kindling in the gloom of cool cathedral clay caves. That, to a French ear, this is I mean we've been taught in France not to um, uh, to avoid irregularities, excess. Okay, this is very, um, this is secondary school basics. And clearly, uh, Moron is also working according to the uh, to uh, um, to secondary school basics. He uh, reduces right the um, uh, the um, uh, excess right of of Virginia Woolf. Le coq s'égosille, les arbres prennent l'éclat des drapeaux déchiquetés, étincelant dans l'ombre froide des nefs de cathédrale. Um, and we can see that the, the cacophony, perhaps, of the key word of the key words um, uh, to address that Moron halves the numbers and distributes them in a more balanced and ternary way. A truly French attitude, uh, since, as I said before, we've been drilled in secondary school to contain verbal excess, excesses and imbalance. The translator's hand, therefore, is gentle, friendly, even but firm. In particular, Moron tends to undermine Gould's Gothic, Gould's Gothic asperities and a drift towards the dramatic. Often, for instance, the English ghost slides into the more familiar French ombre. The roaming fingers of the flying creatures in English are mitigated as more simpler, more simple jest, and often the solemn gloom is redirected towards the common adjective triste. There is also in the French version a playfulness missing in the original. It happens, for instance, when the tenebrous and fantastic atmosphere of the house is broken all of a sudden by a colloquial expression. La nuit cependant succède à la nuit. L'hiver en tient un paquet en réserve. This expression, un paquet, is in French, sounds very, very familiar. And it's a, it's a very also colloquial way to denote a large quantity of things. So all of a sudden, in the French translation, the gloomy tonality of catastrophe evaporates into a matter-of-fact language. The French text has also a very gay attitude towards the spirits and the airs of the English versions of the English versions, which fly around and brush shoulders with the sleeping creatures of the furniture. They are souffle, right, and not spirits, and play around the deserted house with an accent, with an accent on their drollery. They are joueur, playful, precisely. Indeed, sometimes one feels the souffle are very similar to Pope's light militia of the lower hair in the rip of the, of the lock, busy exploring the resources of Belinda's toilet, toilet table, and a great and the great quantity of tangible objects um, one finds in a house inhabited by women, shawls and china perfume bottles, among others, which punctually also appear in uh, in the version of Time Passes. Thus, Virginia Woolf goes French humoured in a less dramatic language, tamed somehow by the frequent censorship of her phonetic exuberance and semantic repetitions or irregularities, moulded into the frames of a less adventurous syntax. But moving forward eventually towards a conclusion, to, uh, am I overdoing the time? Okay. Um, I would like to offer two considerations which may perhaps be paradoxical because one tells about what was gained in the translation, and the other about what was lost. What was gained is connected to Moron, Fry, and Mallarmé. In 1919, Fry started translating uh, Mallarmé, a task that was interrupted by his death many years later. 
Um, but while working and discussing a lot with his friend Moron, also a dedicated Malarméen, he wrote a, an early introduction um, to, uh, to the French poets, concentrating on the French poet's technique, and in particular to his use of verbal aura. Right? Uh, when a word is apprehended, writes fry, then this aura takes shape in the mind, and when a second word is joined to the first, as, for instance, in a position or as an adjective to a noun, this changes the aura of the first word, expanding, contracting, and coloring, etc., etc. Um, no doubt, Wolf was interested by Fry's explorations, as she notes in her diary in 1919. Um, quoting, right, um, uh, uh, quoting verbally uh, Fry's uh, expression. Uh, all article presentative. You say the work tree, this is an, an excerpt really from Fry's um, introduction, 1919 introduction. You see the word tree and you see a tree very well. Now, every word has an aura. Poetry combines the different auras in, a sequ in sequence. All that is representative. You say the word tree and you see a tree. Very well. Okay, so sorry for this repetition. Um, and then Fry analyzes um, the particular quality of what he calls... Um, of what he calls vibration, a word very dear to Wolf, competing only in her vocabulary with vacillation, right? Two words which indeed loom very large in her poetics, you know, narrative and essay writing. Now, I think the cluster, and I'd like to read that, um, it may be necessary that a particular word should continue to vibrate, as it were, for a long time until its vibration can be taken up by another word. Um, so the cluster, Fry, Malarmé, Moron, shed light, sheds light on the sense of the French time passes may have had for Wolf, and on how it may be connected to the exploration of her own narrative possibilities, right, and of auras and vibrations, certainly two aspects that she uh, should be working on very much and very intensely. Uh, and I also think that in spite of his slightly teacher-like attitude towards some of Wolf's excesses, Charles Moron was aware of the precious metal he had in hand. And we can see the last slide. This is uh, his translation of uh, an important passage, uh, an excerpt of Time Passes. Um, here, we, we see that the, the, the Anglo-French confrontation is quite interesting because it shows that the aura, the aura created by the textile images, right, so crucial clearly into the lighthouse, um, the mantle, the shawl, etc., and uh, the weaving, um, and, uh, and uh, uh, used, uh, used again, of course, le manteau, la trame, le pli du châle. It's very respectful, right, uh, towards one of the main, the most significant metaphors in uh, To the Lighthouse. But also the vibration is propagated by the, the vibration of wave, wove, wavered, right, this kind of of discursive uh, running vibrations, which is so common in Wolf, is also um, 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 is, is also proving true to his intimacy with Malarmé. Moro's version is true to the weaving, la trame, le manteau, and to the semantic and phonetic vibration of oscillant, hésitant. So what the commerce episode silently points to, therefore, is the role of Malarmé in informing some of Wolf's stylistic choice. In this sense, something was gained for her, 
a little or small laboratory of Malamean vibrations and poetics. But there were losses as well. Publishing in commerce, Wolf was penetrating in the unchallenged kingdom of Joyce, guarded by his main priest, Valérie Larbeau. Was she aware that the review was dedicated to the cult of Ulysses? Probably, indeed, I have a feeling that she, had, she may have wished herself to face the question of Joyce's undiscussed status in Paris, maybe even to dispute it. A confrontation of two passages, um, uh, one from Ulysses and the other one from uh, Time Passes, these two scenes right, being confronted suggest deliberate and ironic hint at the Irishman. On one hand, we've got Stephen Dedalus delighting in philosophy, very pompous, really, as we know him, uh, delighting in epiphanies, workplace. And on the other, the tired old lady who does not sur surrender to abstraction and expect a poor revelation of broken world. But these two beach plays, you know, the scenes, I mean, I think, you know, we know that, of course, Virginia had read, uh, Wolf had read with great attention and, and, and a little bit of polemical spirit, um, uh, Ulysses. And clearly, I mean, it seems to me that there is, a, you know, a clear allusion, right, to uh, yet another, the 1922 um, uh, walk on the beach, right, this is so, uh, and that Mrs. McNab, McNab, the La Concierge, as uh, Freud calls her, is a kind of, of uh, yes, uh, humorous and ironic answer to, um, to, to, you know, to, to Joyce's occasional pomposity, and certainly to Stephen Dedalus' um, uh, occasional pomposity as well. So yes, I think there is something, um, a deliberate and ironic hint, ironic hint here at the Irishman. Um, and uh, and Mrs. McNab, um right, suggesting, right, the poor revelation of broken words, right, uh, and not, uh, and no, no epiphany at all, at, at all. So I do believe that Wolf was staging, right, deliberately a very witty conversation, and really conversation was also the point of commerce, okay? Commerce is, in French, means conversation as well as trade. Um, and I think she was, yes, uh, staging a conversation with Joyce, but of course nobody noticed, and Parisian culture was too much absorbed in its icons and its consolidated icons, such as Joyce, to even notice Wolf's irony. Fran for perceiving in her prose a dialectical challenge to Joyce's, um, to Joyce's prose, Paris treated her as an emasculated imitator of the great, of the great writer. L'œuvre de Virginia Woolf ne possède ni la grandeur, ni la solidité architecturale de certaines œuvres d'hommes, ni non plus cet équilibre des facultés créatrices qui en assurent la durée. I won't translate that. It's such a horrible translation. Okay? She doesn't have any of the balance of, of male word. And this is by Delatre, one of the first scholars to approach, um, to approach Woolf's, um, uh, Woolf's work. And not to mention Louis Gillet's incredibly arrogant and patronizing comment. Uh, Madame Virginia Woolf apprivoise en quelque sorte l'ours Monsieur Joyce. Elle l'a éduqué, nettoyé, peigné, parfumé, bichonné. Bref, elle l'a si bien léché it's, it's, que le formidable que le formidable animal est sorti de ses mains frisé comme un caniche doux, comme un agneau. Il est aisé, it's so easy, I'm, I'm, you all understand French, I've no doubt, but anyway, it's so striking. Il est aisé de voir que les livres de Madame Virginia Woolf portent l'empreinte du génie de, de James Joyce. 
Quoi qu'on pense d'Ulysse, ce livre étrange demeure une date littéraire. Jamais Madame Gouff n'aurait écrit ce petit chef-d'œuvre du phare si elle n'avait songé tout le temps à Ulysse. Right. So, uh, of course, To the Lighthouse, therefore, in France, was born in out of the um, uh, out of the, the shadow, right, and of of Joyce's uh, literary. Uh, body. So, um, yes, so, um, for, for many years, would, Wolf would have been read in the shadow of Joyce uh, for quite a while, really, and one has to wait for Simone de Beauvoir's discovery in the 50s to see her emerging of Joyce's, um, you know, aura. So the commerce, and to conclude very briefly now, the commerce episode proves an appropriate document of the oscillating, vacillating perceptions of Wolf in France. And perhaps also of, um, I'm sorry to say that because Paris is also my, my home city, but perhaps of an ingrained short-sightedness and ultimately um, provincialism, right, of the city that at the time considered itself the undiscussed capital of culture of the whole world. Thank you.